welcome, or welcome back if you've been gone a little bit. We are going to go ahead and start in just a moment. Welcome to those listening online as well. We're going to have a word of prayer first, and then we will be in Luke 14. So let's open it in a word of prayer, and Nathan, would you please pray? opportunity that we have to come together to worship you, and I pray that you prepare our hearts to meet with you today. I pray that as we meditate upon your word, that you would transform our lives, that you would inflame them for your glory, that you would conform us to your image, and I pray that we would be a people who, um, who each and every day satisfy our souls upon your goodness and your faithfulness and your love, and I pray that, um, that you would Give us a heart after your own heart. I pray that we would be known for our love and our unity. And we would be known for knowing you intimately through prayer and through your word. And that you would use us in big and small ways to magnify you, to glorify you. And that we would live inside of eternity. And as aliens and, and strangers upon this earth, uh, seeking to advance your kingdom. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll be in Luke 14, and there's really a big chop-off between 14 and 15, so two options. You can either do extra questions and discussion this morning, or we can get out early and have just visiting before church. But, um, but we're really going to just do 14 and not try to go into 15, okay? So just so you know what's happening. Um, but by way of review from 14, what heart attitude is Jesus addressing when he calls out people for... Scrambling for the best seats. Remember that lunch on a Saturday at a Pharisee's house? Okay. So if, if you aren't humble, what kind of attitude do you have? Prideful. Okay. So it would seem like the, the attitude is I'm the most important person in the room and I deserve to have the best seats in the room. And uh, I'll push to get that. And uh, that's a hard attitude we all have to deal with at some level. And so you mentioned humble, which uh, kind of goes into the next thing. Let's look again at Philippians 2 for the kind of heart attitude we are called to have as believers. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Could somebody read that, please? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. That each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not really look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Could you spend the rest of your life just living that verse out? I mean, starting with our spouses or other family members, or people in the church, or relatives. I mean, to put others and think about others instead of just self all the time is a lifelong learning curve. And we need grace. God's enabling grace to change these hearts that are wired to be so self-seeking. Um, otherwise, we'll just stay that way all the time. What heart attitude is Jesus addressing when he calls out the host on his guest list? To be awkward, don't you think? I mean, it says he said it right to the one who invited him. So, kind of on top of those huskers moment. Oh, 
talking about for if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Right. Right. Just that self-serving, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. Uh, which kind of just about pride too, isn't it? <laughs> that self-centeredness. Why are those who give to and serve others who can't repay them blessed? Let's start with what is blessed. Go ahead, Mark. Happy. Right. Truly happy in the fullest sense of the word. So happy will work, but uh, it's bigger than just typical happiness. So do you remember some verses? Um, Let's look at Luke 14, 14, that was the immediate one. Would somebody read Luke 14, 14? And you will be blessed because you cannot repay, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay. So having the long-term view, like Nathan prayed this morning, that we're not just thinking of the immediate, what can this person do for me? Oh, they really can't do anything for me. Forget it. It's... There's a God in heaven who notices everything and rewards everything, and he'll take care of how this comes out. So can you think of a couple other verses about the blessing of giving or serving others now and later? Okay, how about Acts 20.35? Acts 20. Could somebody read verse 35? In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So that's not just at Christmas. (laughs) That is... We're to remember that Jesus said that. So it's not strange to call to mind that I'll get a blessing if I give to someone. That, that's not wrong. Jesus is encouraging us. Yeah, go for the blessing. I'll give you a greater blessing than if you were on the receiving end. So I hope you've tasted that in your life a few times. And then last but not least, Matthew 10, 42. Let's somebody read Matthew 10, 42. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Okay, so a little person getting a drink at the water fountain after church or Awana, probably not going to be able to pay you back. You're not going to check, get a check in the mail. <laughs> Love, Caleb, wealthy. <laughs> no, thanks for the water. Um, we're not going to get repaid now, but Jesus says you will have a reward. So, again, it really is a fight of faith. Is does Jesus really know where the the true happiness is to be found? Because the world says happiness is look out for yourself. Um, if you don't take care of yourself, who will? And Jesus says, no, look out for others, and I'll take care of you. And that's the fight of faith which one will I really believe is the greatest source of joy. So any questions or comments on that? Pastor, you can throw in um, the passage that talks about don't store up treasures on earth where sure. moth and rust is destroyed. Um, we should be aiming to store up treasures in 
rewards that Jesus talks about, eternal rewards that uh, can't be stolen, can't, they don't decay. Amen. So maybe just one more comment on that. It would be, um, I think it's John Piper had a sermon on 1 Corinthians 15. talks about if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. And he said, is there anything in your life that doesn't make sense if there's no such thing as a resurrection? You know, are we living just like the natives? Or is there something that, like, you have to believe there's a life to come for eternity to do the, what you just did? So that's a fair question. And that's, let, let's, let's take, how would everybody do it? <laughs> everybody give them the A for that? Or, but just it's worth examining our hearts. It's like, it, am I living in light of eternity? Or do I just live like this is all there is, which is what the way the world does? Tom? When we were newly married and sitting in a Sunday school class, I thought it was kind of interesting that the teacher was talking about this subject. And he said, okay, everybody get your checkbooks out hmm. and open up the check register and hand it to the person on your left. <laughs> 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 test. Wow. Yeah. Did, did people do it? No. Oh. <laughs> no one could do it now. <laughs> yeah, because put your money where your mouth is, right? Very good. So thank you for adding that about treasure. And then one last thing we looked at last week. Uh, what are we to learn from the story about the people who made excuses for not coming to a banquet? The excuses weren't good enough. Okay. All right. Their seats get taken. Yeah. And their seats will get taken. Right. Okay. And if you put those together, you could say something like, don't assume you're included. Only those who make an appropriate response to the invitation will be there, and not those who assume they will be there. Okay. So any comments or questions on what we covered last Sunday in Luke 14? All right. Well, let's... Move into the next section. So how is the word disciple sometimes used outside of the Bible? You ever heard it in other contexts besides Christian circles? And if so, how is it used? Like a student or a teacher. Very good. Very good. Any other times you kind of hear the word disciple used Okay, it is also used as a verb, right? Um, I get this is an old one, but I mean, when Tom Osborne was in the glory days of uh, the Huskers, he had a, a big staff of associate uh, coach or assistant coaches, and they were all his disciples. So they went on and did other coaching, and they were just little Tom Osborne's. <laughs> you know, they didn't have the success he did, but they looked at football and coached football the way their teacher had. So there's not only being a student, but a student who kind of copies your teacher. Okay? So that's very similar to what we have in the Bible. Um, a disciple is a follower, a learner, an apprentice who attaches himself to a teacher so that over time he becomes a walking, talking replica of the teacher. Can you think of a verse where I would have stolen that definition? 
Okay, and we're actually going to get to that, right? So, so you're on to something, right? We actually looked at it a few weeks ago or months ago now. Remember Luke 6:40? A disciple is not above his teacher, but of everyone after he's been fully trained, could be after he's been fully discipled, verb like Naomi mentioned will be like his teacher. Okay, so there's, you attach yourself to the Lord Jesus, you spend time under his instruction, and over time, you're becoming like Jesus. That's the goal. Okay, so any questions on that definition? Anybody buy that? I hope so, because it's right in Luke 640, so. <laughs> so you also throw in First Corinthians 11. Okay, good, good. All right, so how is the term disciple sometimes distinguished from the word Christian in some circles? Have you ever heard like a difference between them? Like I'm thinking of a Sunday night service back in the day when we had Sunday night service. We had a guest speaker and he spent a lot of time talking about the difference between a disciple and a Christian. And <laughs> at the end of the service, I had to just call everybody to be Bereans. I said, you've heard our brother say this, and you've heard me from the same pulpit say something else. And um, so search the scriptures and see what you're going to believe about this. And the interesting twist was he was staying at our house that night. <laughs> Angela remembers that, I'm sure. So um, it was very awkward. But he did acknowledge, eventually we, we wrote back, this is back when there was an email yet, so we wrote letters. <laughs> and at one point he acknowledged there is no difference between a Christian and a disciple in the Bible. So sometimes Christian is used to you prayed to receive Christ. You had some kind of response to Christ. And a disciple is what then? Someone who is actively following. Yeah, actively following. I like that. Someone who's serious about Jesus, right? So, um, it kind of puts, there's two levels of Christian. Being a disciple is optional. It's sort of like if you want the premium package... Want to fly, fly first class? <laughs> There's some perks. You get some extra rewards. But if you just want to be a Christian <laughs> and just have a fire insurance policy tucked away in your wallet uh, that you'll show at the gates, um, you can just do the basic package. You're in tourist class or economy class or whatever the like the really low class is. But you still get there. You still get to heaven. You might not have all the rewards, but you're still heaven. So what's the big deal? Have you ever kind of picked up that vibe of there's Christians and then there's, well, there's a few like hardcore people that are disciples. And so I want to just show some things that that's not a biblical way to go. So let's look first at the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Somebody read 18 to 20, please. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the 
Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and to hold I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so Jesus is after what or who? Starts with a D. Disciples. Disciples. Not another word that starts with a D called decisions. It's not after, go get people to make decisions. He says, go make disciples, followers, who will become more and more like me. So that's interesting, I think. How about, what is the relationship between disciple and Christian in the book of Acts? Just ballpark. Okay, 30 times people that believe in Jesus are called disciples. Guess how many times they're called Christians? Once. And that was what Andrew was alluding to. Let's go to Acts 11, 26. Acts 11. <clears throat> Somebody please read verse 26. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay. So Christians was a nickname. Who gave it to him? People in Antioch. That's what the world called them. Why? They look like Christ. Bingo. Okay. So, because of their Christ-like speech and Christ-like love and Christ-like attitudes and Christ-like conduct, they got the nickname Little Christs or Christ Ones. Just like Baptist, by the way, is a nickname. In case you didn't know that, it comes from our practice of baptizing believers. That was a nickname that was tagged on us in the 1600s, not, oh, let's call ourselves Baptists, because that'll clarify everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a nickname that stuck, and Christians is a nickname. But notice the order. It wasn't the Christians that were serious got nicknamed disciple. It's people that are already serious about following Jesus get called Christians. So even the way the... Some circles try to distinguish those is backwards. They were disciples. They followed Jesus, and it was so obvious that's who they're following. That's where the nickname came from. So any comments or questions on that? Well, I think it goes back to last week or the week before when you talked about the people in the world that identify as Christians (laughs) and the subset of those that actually Boom. And that's where you get the people that think, yeah, I'm economy class. I've got the fire insurance policy versus the people that are actively following, as Brett said. There shouldn't be a distinguished, uh, any, anything different between a Christian and a disciple. But people think that being a disciple is varsity. I'll just, okay. I'll just sit right at the bench on JV. <laughs> oh, I gotta steal that. 
And you're still on the team if you're JV, right? You still yeah. get to suit up and be identified with the team. That's, that's nice. That feels good. You don't have a play, but... <laughs> Any other comments on this sometimes distinction that's made? I don't know if it's a point that needs to be made, but like, there's a difference between progressive sanctification and what we're talking about. I mean, sometimes we look at fellow believers and think, I'm nowhere near as far along as they are, but, but that's, that's different than what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, um, like, well, because you, you're new to your faith and you don't feel like you know your Bible as well as Pastor or Russ or, or Kyle. <laughs> but... <laughs> But the difference there is, is being a disciple is still actively pursuing Christ where you're at. Right. And it's, it's not just, well, you know, become a disciple once you know a certain amount of things. That's not true either. It's where we're progressively growing in the likeness of the image of Christ. That's what marks a disciple, not a certain level or a certain depth or a certain level of maturity that, that comes. It's, it's something that comes over time. But we're both disciples, whether we're new or we've been doing it a while, and once further down the road, I think that that's helpful to clarify. Yeah, and again, the goal is becoming like Christ, not becoming like Russ or whoever. Although yeah. Russ is a good guy. To... Amen. Yeah, so the goal is not let's compare ourselves to other people. Um, it's compare yourself to Christ. And all of us fall short, but we're in this growth curve or learning curve to become more and more like him. It's a prog uh, progressive or progress that we all make. It's not once and done or you have some really cool experience and boom, now I'm like Christ. It's all your life you're becoming more and more like Christ. It's a slow process. Um, I think Jerry Bridges talks about um, cruise control Christianity compared to race car Christianity. And he says cruise control Christianity is you get up to speed with whatever Christians you hang out with. <laughs> and then you push, go, okay, I'm good. You know, they are pretty okay with only reading the Bible once every few months. So I'll get up to that speed, and I'll feel good about that, and I'll just cruise along. And he says, no, it's more like race car Christianity, and he gets that from 1 Corinthians 9, run in such a way as to win. So I always think of go-kart racing with my kids, and I have a sore leg after I'm done because I've held the, the pedal as hard as I could to the floor to beat them. <laughs> I am not just interested in cruising around the track going, well, this is fun. I want to beat you. And, and that's run in such a way as to win, or in this case, drive in such a way as to win. And so our goal is not, how am I pretty good compared to the other Christians I know? Because you could always find some Christians that are not doing as well as you, right? <laughs> so you just push cruise. All right, I'm good. I blend in. 
And it's like, no, don't worry about other people, whether it's their gifts or their Bible knowledge or any other personality things. Or it, it's just, Look at Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ and keep growing in Him. Tom? It becomes, this becomes so important when we're talking about our kids. You know, they're raised in our home. They're raised in a, a wonderful church that preaches the Word. And I just remember as the kids, when our kids were growing up, you know, now they're all married and having kids. And, but as they're growing up and we're disciplining them and being disciplined, bringing it to the gospel, and always preaching the gospel to them throughout everything that happens in their life. And, you know, we have, you know, some of, one of our children, I won't name names, um, some of you will probably already know that, but uh, one of our child was pretty compliant and a compliant kid, and I wanted mom and dad's approval, so he did things now you know it's boys. <laughs> <laughs> I narrowed down. <laughs> he did things so that he, we would be happy with him. And I was going to say, that's Jacob. So then Logan comes along, and Jacob had made a profession of faith. And then Logan comes along, and God saves Logan. And I'm, I'm thinking of John 15. The fruit that was evident on Logan's mind showed Jacob that he would have that same sap running, even though he had made a profession. Okay, sure. And because of the fruit he saw in his brother's life, he came to us and he said, I don't have what Logan has in my life. And he confessed Christ and repented. And, and that day was truly sad. Teach them, and we become fruit inspectors, and not to judge them, but to help them see what does the Word of God say about you know, if are you really in Christ? Good, thank you. Any other thoughts or comments about being a disciple, which is, aka, being a real Christian, <laughs> right? Good, and, th and that's coming from Hebrews 5. So. so, Alondra's referring to Hebrews 5, 11 and following. It says, concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And this is the reason he gives. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So this is about what Brett was talking about, the progressive part. It's like part of the growth is as we eat, take in more and more of the word, we advance from basic principles um, to just more and more understanding of the scriptures and how they're connected, and, and that's to be expected. That's, we're, we're called to grow. In fact, he says, um, let us press on to matur maturity is in, what verse? 6-1. Uh, 
yeah, let us press on to maturity. So, come on, let's grow up. Let's not stay little baby Christians for the rest of our time down here. Let's grow. And then look at 6.3. And this we will do if God permits. So it's not ultimately in our hands. We're dependent on God's grace to even grow. So it's not just, here's a slick discipleship program that guarantees you will grow and mature and be like Christ in 10 years. It's, if God permits, we'll use the means of grace like the scriptures and prayer and encouraging one another to help each other grow. But we can't guarantee maturity. God has to do that. So there's just so many guardrails. Just in case we think we've got this, we, it's in our hands to make something happen. Verses like that come on. Well, yeah, you have a role, but ultimately God is the one who's going to grant the growth and the maturity and the progress. So, which doesn't make us passive, it makes us hopeful that God's committed to the program, not just our strengths. All right. Well, let's look at what Jesus says is necessary to be a disciple. Let's go to 14, 25, and 26. <coughs> Somebody read Luke 14, 25, and 26. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, that gets your attention, doesn't it? How do we know Jesus doesn't literally mean hate? Um, I think about in the book of First John, how it says, "He who hates his brother is a murderer." Okay, so, so that would be okay. Uh, so that's a good good clue. Would Jesus tell us go be a murderer? <laughs> to follow me. Of course not. So that's, a, that's what I want is give me Bible verses, not just, well, it couldn't mean that because. So that's great. Thank you, Moses. You said John, First uh, John, I believe, if we don't love our brothers, we're not from God. Okay, good. So that would work. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 through 7, right? Murder in your heart. Okay, it's a little later than the attitudes, but right? Yeah. Okay. Or hating your heart. Um, he affirms honor your father and mother, so that won't go with hating father and mother. Um, he says we're to love our wives. <laughs> and Jesus said hate wives. So, so there's texts that tell us he doesn't mean literal hate, which I hope none of you were really flirting with. <laughs> so what does he mean? Okay, that could work, and that's certainly spelled out in Matthew. It's not there in Luke, but in Matthew's, it has a little different flavor of love more than, which is very possible. Sure. Um, that in Matthew 5, 5 through Love me more than anyone else in the world. I'm worthy of your supreme loyalty and allegiance. And it look, might look like hate that you hate your family members or even hate yourself to follow me. Okay, so think of a 
hardcore Jewish family then or a Muslim family now. Uh, to turn to Christ looks like you're turning away from the family, which is a big deal in Jewish circles or Muslim circles. And what are you thinking? Why would you do such a thing? That's, like, that's your identity. That's who you are. And to say, Jesus matters more to me than being part of this family and being a Muslim, and I must follow him. That, that looks like hate. Um, and Jesus says that kind of commitment level is what he calls all disciples to. You know, we don't have that, you know, exterior kind of thing because we're from Jewish and Muslim backgrounds, but still, I mean, you might do something that your parents or other relatives think you're crazy <laughs> um, because of your commitment to follow Jesus, and that's, that's a good sign. So, any questions on that condition of following Jesus? Okay, let's look at 27. So let me read that one. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay. So how is a cross to bear sometimes used now? Some sort of difficulty or trial. Okay. And sometimes very minor ones at that, right? <laughs> yeah, my car's been acting up again. It's just my cross to bear. <laughs> you know? um, what did Jesus mean, and how would his original hearers have understood the idea of carrying a cross? If you saw somebody walking down the street with a wooden cross beam on their shoulder, what does that mean? Yeah. They're on their way to get executed on a cross. Okay, It's not a little minor trouble. <laughs> it's you are condemned to death and it won't be long. Your rights and everything else are gone. And so, like Jesus himself would carry his cross. In other words, you're willing to suffer and die and pay any price to follow Jesus. And of course, throughout church history, there have been martyrs uh, who've literally given their lives for the faithfulness to Christ. Um, not just an old thing in church history, still happening in our world today. Um, so it's, it would seem, that the example I always think of is enlisting in the Marines. I just talked to somebody Friday night uh, whose son just uh, joined the Marines. And, um, you know, it's really cool. They have these really cool dress uniforms. And everybody has this word associated, like Marines. Oh, you guys are the, the few, the proud, you know, the tough guys. Um, and it is. My, my brother and my nephew are Marines. But um, when you sign up, you also need to understand there's a very real possibility you're going to get shot at, wounded, captured, or killed. You need to understand that before you join the Marines. Or don't join. They're not going to make a special allowance like, oh, <laughs> I was hoping for safety and convenience and like just fun. Like, no, you're, you're at the wrong place. Marines are people who are in the face, uh, are in harm's way, and put themselves in places of danger for the sake of others. So if you don't understand that it will cost you, don't be a Marine. And that's what Jesus is saying in even bigger terms. To be a Christian, to follow me, could cost you your life or your reputation or your job or all kinds of things. 
You just need to know that up front. And if you're willing to follow, great. If not, don't, don't sign up. Okay. But there's not an option of you can just sign up and avoid that possibility. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so and that's what he tells us in 28 through 32. So let me read those verses, please. So this is sometimes known as just counting the cost. You know, do you know what you're getting into to follow Jesus? He just told us some of it. Um, and then the question becomes, is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth his demand on my relationships and his um, demands on my safety and well-being? And next verse he'll talk about my possessions. Is, is he worth it? So let's look at a couple verses that tell you what you already are thinking, I hope. Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Would somebody please read 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again from joy over it and from joy over it he, it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and upon finding one pearl of great value he went and sold all that he had and bought it so does the man who sold everything he had to buy that field um, counts the cost and how does he feel about it Go ahead, Tess. Joy. Joy over it. Not like, oh, I have to give up everything to get this field. There's a joy. I get this treasure. Or the pearl merchant doesn't specifically say joy, but the same thing. It's like, I found the pearl of all pearls. I'll gladly sell everything to have that pearl, which is Jesus, by the way, not you. <laughs> and again, I'm sorry I have to add these comments, but it's like, Christian circles like, you are the pearl of great price, and Jesus gave everything to get you. That is not the point of that story. <laughs> Jesus is the pearl of great price. He's worth everything to have. Okay, and then Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I, am, whom I have suffered loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
Is Paul feeling sorry for himself for all the stuff he gave up? Is he feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm such a trooper. I took one for the team. I gave up everything. What, how does he look at everything he gave up? Rubbish. Rubbish. Okay. Um, thinking two days ago I took out the trash. Um, I'm not still thinking about the trash I took out. <laughs> Man, I wish I could still have that. <laughs> I miss it. I really miss that plastic bag full of garbage I took out. And I'm glad you're laughing, and that's the point. Paul says everything, my reputation, my physical safety, everything that I've given up, I think about as much as, with as much fondness as rubbish compared to the surpassing value. Not just, boy, it just merely makes it over like 5149, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So there's no comparison. There's no comparison. He is worth all. And last, verse 33, back in Luke 14. Luke 14, would somebody read? 33, please. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay. So you might have the word give up. It's the same word take leave of or say goodbye that we saw in Luke 9, 61. Remember there was the would-be follower that said, permit me first to say goodbye to my father or my family. Same word. So you kind of say goodbye to your right of ownership. Everything I am and have belongs to Jesus. Um, it is at his disposal. Um, and it reminds me of a Jim Elliot quote, which I think he basically stole from Philip Henry, which is Matthew Henry's dad. Um, he is no fool gives up what he cannot keep. What's the rest of it? To gain what you cannot lose. So you can't keep this stuff anyway. Right? That's, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. You've heard that one. You can't take it with you. We enter this world with nothing. We leave this world with exactly nothing. Okay? So you can't keep it anyway. So Jesus says, you might as well say goodbye to it now. <laughs> Put it in my, at my disposal be free and gain what you can't lose. So, any comments or questions on that condition? Well, instead of you said enlisting, I look at it more as a draft because we're not the ones that even enlist ourselves to going to Christ. It's like more like Jesus drafted us to come to Him. At a deep level, you are absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> In Luke 14, He's turning to a big crowd that's following him, and for a bunch of reasons. Remember, some just were following why? Free groceries, right? John 6. You get free bread when this guy's around. Let's follow him. Others are following, I need a healing, or I have a relative that needs a healing, so we'll follow for that. I mean, there are all these mixed motives for following Jesus. Jesus kind of turns around, draws a line in the sand, and says, okay, if you want to keep following me, here's the deal. Love me more than anyone else. Love me more than anything else. Be ready to lay down your life for me. And if you still want to keep following me on those terms, keep coming. So, just ballpark, what percentage do you think kept going? I bet it was 
a lot less than the original crowd, right? He really thinned, <laughs> he really thinned it out on purpose because he doesn't want just half, half followers. Okay? He doesn't want just half committed. It's pretty much all or nothing, isn't it? And you're going to be a disciple or you're not going to be a disciple. It's not like, let's look for the in-between, lukewarm, just sort of semi-believe in Jesus, but kind of want everything else to. Jesus isn't interested in that. He says, there's a line. You can follow or not follow, but that's, that's, the, that's my cut for that. So, Alondra, you're absolutely right. Only God's grace working in us first would even make us want to do that. <laughs> um, and that's other verses. You know, right here it's just, okay, come follow me. Those who have been uh, effectually called, is a big fancy word for it, will hear that and say, I still want to come even though that's the cost. And those without the grace of God working in our hearts will say, forget it, that's too high a price. Well, the reason why I said draft is because people are scared in the first place to even leave their stuff behind and go do something that they don't want to go do mm -hmm. their body and then coming to Christ or like, that wasn't such a bad thing, leaving all that, but hmm. I'm still, you know, like, you understand what I'm trying to... Kind of? <laughs> Not 100%, but... I don't know, I just have to think about it. Yeah. So, it, so yes and. So, yes... Jesus drafts us, and yes, we gladly, willingly, freely say, yes, Lord. Yeah, and don't want to try to separate those. And the reason we gladly do want to follow Jesus is because God's grace changed our hearts, so we now want to. Okay. So let's close in prayer. And Lord willing, we will hit Luke 15 next Sunday. So Ed, would you close us in prayer, please? on you through this coming week. Pray for the following service, be with pastors and leaders, fill them with your spirit. <clears throat> Thank you for the blessing you see me every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.